Всім зараз варто думати про захист нашої держави. Зібратись, не розхолоджуватись, не розпадатись на суперечки чи інші якісь пріоритети. Ситуація зараз така ж, як і була раніше. Якщо не буде перемоги, то не буде країни. Recent remarks by General Valery Zaluzhny, Ukraine's top military commander, that the war with Russia is locked in a stalemate with no breakthrough on the horizon, landed in a toxic political atmosphere in the West, in which support for military assistance to Kyiv is ebbing and the issue is becoming polarized. But Zaluzhny's assessment also landed in a fraught atmosphere inside Ukraine itself, as the country braces for a long and drawn-out war for survival. So what is the state of the home front for Ukrainians? Is Ukraine's much-vaunted unity and resilience fraying at the edges? And what does this mean going forward? Well, I've got the perfect guest to help us unpack it all to better understand Ukraine's war at home. So stick around. Hello from the studios of UTA Radio in Arlington, Texas, where I am spending the week, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me here in the studio is Serhii Kudelia, an associate professor of political science at Baylor University and a close observer of Ukrainian affairs and author of numerous articles in Ukrainian politics and foreign policy. Welcome to The Vertical, Sergei, and welcome to the campus of UTA. Hi, Brian. Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So we discussed Zaluzhny's interview with The Economist and his accompanying essay last week on the podcast with James Sher and Michael Weiss. And my first reaction to the piece was concern about how this would land in the current toxic political climate in the United States and in the West in general. But there is another piece to this that I wanted to get your perspective on. How did Zaluzhny's very frank assessment of the uh, land in Ukraine? When I was in Kyiv back in May, you could almost taste the national unity and sense of purpose in the air. But now we're in an environment in which the spring and summer counteroffensive did not achieve the admittedly high hopes many had. Serhii, even before this war, you were writing about Ukraine's resilience in the face of Russian aggression. It's always been Ukraine's secret weapon. Do we run the risk now that the unity the world has seen over the past 20 months may begin to fade? Yes, Brian. So, uh, of course, when we talk about resilience, we talk about the commitment of Ukrainians to fight Russian aggression, the determination to resist uh, with all our forces. And that is still there. That is certainly not gone. Uh, I haven't seen any polls that would indicate that the Ukrainians are willing to give up their territories. But what I think is is different now compared even to six months ago when you were visiting Kiev is the outlook about the future, uh, the set of expectations. Uh, because remember, at the beginning of, of uh, the full-scale invasion, in the first few months, all the polls were showing that the majority of Ukrainians were not only confident that Ukraine would win, but they also viewed victory as something that would be connected to fundamental change within Ukraine itself in the way Ukraine would be governed. And hence, you had these very positive expectations that Ukraine was on the right track because once we win the war we can, uh, with the external aggressor, we can also defeat those inside Ukraine who were pulling us back. I think that conviction, that confidence is now gone. And uh, for very many Ukrainians now, and these, this is the recent polls that indicate that Ukrainians, more Ukrainians now believe that Ukraine is on the, on the wrong track 
about 30% say that Ukraine is moving on the wrong track. And more and more Ukrainians do not believe that there would be a fundamental change in the quality of their life in any foreseeable future. So the outlook regarding the economy, the outlook regarding their, uh, their own personal welfare, and the outlook regarding corruption, the ability to fight corruption within Ukraine, all of that is getting more negative, more pessimistic. So uh, we are clearly seeing that um, um, more people are now either skeptical well, very pessimistic about how things will turn out. Any Western leader would love to see 70% right track. Ukraine just be is going to begin a session talks to the European Union. And it's, I think it's reasonable to assume that, 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 that the accession process is going to create tangible changes and tangible improvements um, in, in, in life for Ukrainians. So, for Ukrainians. So, I mean, is, is this reverting to 30% wrong track? And again, when we look at Zelensky's job approval ratings, yeah, they fell to the horribly low number of 76%, according to the most recent polls I've seen. Uh, I think President Biden would love to have those numbers. So just to play devil's advocate here, is this basically a, a, just a matter of looking at the glass half empty or half full? Right. Well, as I emphasize, the key here is not the absolute number. The key is the trend. Mm -hmm. And the trend has been going negative. The trend has been mm -hmm. downward. More people were, uh, more and more and people are skeptical or pessimistic about the future, and that has been a, a very clear shift. Mm -hmm. Regarding the popularity of Zelensky, let me just emphasize that the number that you cite, and that is uh, whether people trust Zelensky or not, is really uh, uh, reflective of the extent to which they trust their leader in the time of war. Mm -hmm. It's not about them really affirming that they fully trust Zelensky as a politician, uh, it's a way of saying that we are uh, still confident in our state because mm -hmm. Zelensky became the symbol of the Ukrainian state. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't really um, take this number as reflective of what people think about how Ukraine is governed. I can give you a few other numbers. That is from the recent poll uh, of uh, the Razumkov Center that was done in, in September of this year. And there, uh, uh, they measured the attitudes of the Ukrainians to political institutions. And what they found was that um, out of all the key political institutions, the highest trust is, of course, in the armed forces. We understand that. The second highest trust is in the civil society, in the volunteers, uh, in those battalions, uh, volunteer battalions that are fighting on the side of Ukraine. But the lowest trust is in the Ukrainian state apparatus, that is bureaucrats. Um, the lowest trust is in the Ukrainian government, mm -hmm. that is the cabinet of ministers of Ukraine, and dismally low trust in the Ukrainian parliament. Mm. So when you just ignore Zelensky for a second and think about what Ukrainians think in general about the key state institutions like the legislature, like their own government, like the courts, by the way, is another institution that people have very low trust in. Prosecutors, uh, there was a special question on prosecutors, Di single digit numbers on the trust in the prosecutorial side of things. So people in general are very skeptical in the capacity of the Ukrainian state to perform in the interest of the citizens of the, of the society. I mean, what it sounds to me like is that polit and we want to, I want to get into this in a, in a bit, that politics is returning to Ukraine. And Ukrainians I mean, have been following the country's post-Soviet trajectory now since since the early 90s. Um, and 
Ukrainians have always been very, very, very tough on their leaders, very skeptical of their leaders. This is one of the things I think, which is the secret to Ukraine's success, right? Incumbent presidents don't do very well in Ukraine. You don't have a lot of job security if you're the president of Ukraine. You get one term and you're out. There was only one exception, and that, of course, is Kuchma in 1999. So I, I think in a lot of ways, this seems to be returning to the mean. There was an article in the New York Times recently, a deadlock war tests Ukraine's morale. I don't know if you saw it. It was, it was it got a lot of attention. We'll, we'll include it in the show notes for our, for our, for our listeners. But I, I'm reading this and thinking about this. I'm like, is this necessarily bad? Is this necessarily a bad thing that this skeptical nature of the Ukrainian body politic, which I've always viewed as the the, the strength of Ukraine, um, that the Ukrainian citizens do not worship their leaders, right. uh, nor should they. Um, and that, yes, naturally in a time of war, this is going, especially a war like this, a war for survival, you're going to see this surge of support for for, for political institutions. Is it a healthy thing? Looking at it as a political scientist and as a Ukrainian, is this a healthy thing? No, I, I certainly believe it's a healthy thing. I agree with you that one thing that uh, one of the one of the several things that uh, set Ukraine apart from other post-Soviet states for a long time was its pluralistic polity, the extent to which pluralism has been tolerated, irrespective of who the president mm-hmm. was and what his uh, intentions were, but also the willingness of the society of the public to challenge to question those people who are in power mm-hmm. uh, and this. Uh, very um, sort of rebellious streak that many Ukrainians have, of course, produced two revolutions. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem, of course, is that we cannot afford the third revolution. Mm. And if we see so low numbers, if we see a gradual increase, by the way, another uh, important question, the uh, poll number that I wanted to bring up now, is the question, what is the top concern that you have as a Ukrainian apart from the war? So, of course, we understand the war is the top concern for all Ukrainians, but if we think about the most important concern apart from the war. 63% of Ukrainians said it's corruption. And it's that's corruption. Correct. That's that's right. Corruption. Bravo. Not, <laughs> not, not uh, low pensions, not low wages, not unemployment, um, not the inability of Ukraine to capture back uh, occupied territories, but corruption. And that is an indication that the Ukrainian society realizes that these hopes that the war mm. would suddenly stop, push uh, 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 bureaucrats to their senses, push businessmen to their senses, and make them concentrate their efforts on fighting the aggressor and stop stealing from the state, Mm -hmm. these hopes are gone because human nature remains the same. But apart from the human nature, there are also institutions that have to restrain human nature. In Ukraine, these institutions do not exist. As a result, people keep stealing like there is no tomorrow. That is a direct quote from uh, the Time magazine article. Mm-hmm. And that is a huge concern. Now, what do we do with this? In the normal uh, political, uh, when you have a normal political process, you wait for another election. And then you kick the rascals out. But Ukraine, that is not in the normal election season, primarily because you cannot hold election because of the martial law. So what's going to happen then if most of the people think that Zelensky cannot clean the house, he cannot bring order, he cannot restrain corruption, but at the same time, we cannot vote Zelensky out. We cannot bring new people in. What's going to happen with this type of a society? What type of tensions will it lead to? Yeah, no, and, and that, and again, I'm going to play devil's advocate. And every point you you make here, Siri, is very well taken. Um, and I think this is an important discussion 
to have because again, domestic Ukrainian politics have been obscured by the war for obvious reasons. But I'm going to again look at the glass as a little bit more half full than half empty right now. Um, and I'm not sure if I believe what I'm saying, but I, I think I want to play devil's advocate here a little bit. I mean, my my my, my very good friend Volodymyr Dubovik, professor at Metchikov National University in Odessa, has said in the past that Ukraine's behaving like the opposite of a failed state, despite the war. The state's functioning. The state is doing the thing that states are supposed to do. And it's actually functioning better than it was functioning when we didn't have a war. Um, and that, I think, and, and you're right, corruption remains a problem. But again, I think the fact that people are coming to the realization that corruption is a vector of Russian influence, corruption is Russia's other war on Ukraine, if you will, um, it's historically how Russia's tried to control Ukraine since the end of the Soviet period through these oligarchic structures. And Ukrainians are increasing, and the political elite is increasingly willing, well aware of this. You have people from civil society that are now in government that are not part of these old Soviet structures anymore. So we're beginning to see generational turnover. And we saw Zelensky go after Kolomoisky was the sponsor of his campaign. Now, you're you're looking at me skeptically, so I'm, I'm, that was my invitation to you to be skeptical. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, let me, let me just say, you said a couple of things that I want to address. First of all, that the state is functioning. Yes, the problem is it's functioning as usual. Uh, it's business as usual. And that is what we are seeing, and that is what we hope is not going to happen. Me included, I have to admit that at the beginning of the full, well, of the full war, right, uh, I thought that uh, there would be a drastic change in the way corruption is dealt with. But we've seen there are multiple new in journalistic investigations that are happening within Ukraine that reveal all kinds of key officials in different positions of power uh, using, uh, abusing these opportunities of um, the lack of proper oversight to, um, you know, uh, get uh, additional uh, revenues into their pockets. So that is becoming very common. Very uh, People know that. And so in that sense, yes, corruption has always had this um, ability to in, uh, improve the functioning of the Ukrainian state in a way that it actually moved things along. And some of there are a number of articles that suggest that, in fact, we should look at corruption as a positive force because it helps people to deal with the state. When, for example, there are certain unreasonable demands that the state is making you, restricts you in some ways, you can always find a way out by giving a little bribe to this or that official. And that was viewed as a positive, as a positive mm. contribution of corruption in these kinds of societies. But unfortunately, we are seeing corruption not only at the low level, but mostly at the top level. And that still continues. And that is still not and addressed. That's a vector of Russian influence that we have to be really, really, really vigilant about. Right. But I, I, I do not think that this now, this type of corruption is necessarily a function of the Russian influence per se, because a lot of corruption that is linked to Russia was going through energy, gas supplies, mm -hmm. uh, yep. and the energy sector was extremely corrupt and Russia controlled it. And so the way it controlled the presidents before Yushchenko, Kuchma, Yanukovych was by offering them these informal indirect mm -hmm. bribes or deals and Yulia Tymoshenko. Um, and then uh, sort of asking for some type of uh, exchange for some type of return in terms of the favorable policies. Um, so I, I, it's, I think it's more of a homegrown thing, mm -hmm. something that we are witnessing right now. Now, you also mentioned civil society. And I think, um, yes, there are certain positive examples of people from the new generation entering the, uh, ultimately Zelensky himself mm -hmm. brought in the very young team. 
But we also see a lot of concerns from the civil society activists right now and from the media activists about the way the government, the authorities, are now ignoring some of their demands uh, or uh, just completely stonewalling what they're what they're asking for. Um, there are a number of key individuals that many civic activists were uh, going after, exposing their corruption and exposing their past ties to Yanukovych, for example. And the government was just ignoring uh, all of the uh, coverage, all of these uh, revelations that were made in the media. And the Time magazine story actually mentioned one of the key officials in the presidential office, of whom it was known in Ukraine, that he was, through his family, uh, subsidizing uh, the uh, energy uh, company uh, that was located on the occupied territory. Uh, it was very well known, but Zelensky uh, chose not to act on this information. And as a result, a few weeks later, we have this very unpleasant fact revealed in the Western media. Now, we see places where Zelensky is acting. Um, is this just the, uh, I don't know what the Ukrainian version of the Russian word pakazuka is, but I'm, I'm sure it exists. Is this just for show? Is this, I mean, he, he did go after Kolomboisky surprised me, quite frankly. He did go into the defense ministry in a time of war with corruption cases. What is he doing there then? I mean, is this is this sincere or is this something else? Right. Uh, you are absolutely right that Kolomoisky was a surprise, a surprise to me. We still do not know what's going to happen with this case. We still do not know what the outcome would be. And we really don't understand... What other what other motives uh, Zelensky may have? Well, the fact that he financed his campaign before, I, I think, uh, does not matter that much at this point in time. It's a different it's a different uh, context. It's a different Zelensky than he was in 2019. Um, as far as other officials are concerned, you mentioned Defense Ministry. Yes, there are criminal cases open against uh, some mid level officials. Uh, in different ministries, not just defense ministry, but top guys uh, like the minister of defense, Reznikov, for example. There are no criminal cases against him, and there, we don't see any big fish uh, from the government apparatus. I mean, uh, ending up on uh, ending up uh, behind bars. So, uh, in some ways, yes, maybe it's symbolic signaling to the society that he's trying to do something. Um, and, but I haven't really seen the results yet. Uh, to be very confident that Zelensky is committed to fighting corruption. Now, there's a difficult balance that, that Ukraine's friends have to strike right now in this situation, because everything you say is correct. Um, but Ukraine is in an existential war for survival right now. And what do you, I mean, we, you know, this podcast does have listeners in, in policymaking circles in the United States and in Western Europe and in the European Union. What, what should Ukraine's friends in the West be doing? How hard should we be pushing how much should we be calling out corruption, or does that harm the war effort? This is a it's a tricky thing for those of us in Western capitals who are friends of Ukraine and who sincerely want to help Ukraine and want the West to play. And I think the West has largely played a, a, a good role in this. We've been a little too slow getting weapons over there, but by and large, I think the West has has has, has the policy has been correct. How hard should we be pushing? Um, very hard, uh, as hard as you can. Uh, Certainly, I quietly or publicly, I understand the sensitivity of public comments regarding corruption because corruption has been, you can call it weaponized, yes, uh, for political reasons by a certain group within the Republican Party that is advocating to uh, cut substantially assistance, military economic assistance coming to Ukraine, 
under the pretext of corruption in Ukraine. And so this um, idea that since Ukraine is a corrupt state, all of the money of U.S. taxpayers will be misspent in Ukraine, hence we should not provide Ukraine with any money, uh, that idea is gaining ground. And I would argue that partially the change, especially among the Republican voters uh, in the United States, as far as them being less um, enthusiastic about further support for Ukraine, is the result of this type of communication, of this type of uh, arguments coming from both media circles and political circles. I think it gives pretext to those that don't want to help Ukraine. It, kind of, it, it gives them an argument that they can use. I don't think their opposition is rooted actually in this. I don't think it's that sincere. Yeah. I think they don't want to help Ukraine, and they're looking for any reason. Yes, although we have also to ask a question, so why are they not ready to help Ukraine? Is there, is there something else that's going on? But we can we can <laughs> set it aside. Set that aside. Yeah, yeah, we can set it aside. So I agree that uh, being extremely vocal about corruption problems in Ukraine for the White House or for the U- U.S. government officials or even Europeans probably would not be the smartest strategy because it would give additional arguments to the other side. And not just the White House, but like our policy community, think tankers like myself and academics like myself. I've tempered my, I've been very careful what I say publicly about this in Ukraine um, because I don't want to give any ammunition to those that don't want to assist Ukraine. Is that the correct, I mean, is it praise in public, criticize in private? Is that is that the best way forward? The best way forward, I think, is introducing hard conditionality on uh, especially further economic assistance and steps regarding EU and NATO. Mm-hmm. And I think that has been already done, uh, at least informally. Um, and so I think that that is the way to go. Um, but in general, uh, I think that this argument about corruption, it's a double-edged sword. So on one hand, by keeping quiet, you're not giving ammunition. But at the same time, we have to acknowledge that corruption is a factor in the way Ukrainian society and public opinion responds to the Ukrainian government and Ukrainian authorities. I gave you the numbers just now. That mm-hmm. is the top concern outside of the war. And if we want to understand and predict especially the future political dynamics and the development within the Ukrainian society, we have to remember about this. Yeah. Now, the other kind of thing on the horizon here is EU accession. It's coming. And EU accession is not easy. You know, meeting the conditions to, to for in Ukraine is about to begin its accession talks. I mean, this would have been like science fiction a couple of years ago, but it, this is happening. Um, but, uh, you know, ask, ask the Baltics, ask the Czechs, the Slovaks, everybody, anybody else who has joined the EU. This is a tough, tough process where you have to change not just your legislation and your formal you know, laws, but, but, but your behavior, um, the way you're truly, truly governed um, and make it a more transparent Western style system. That Then you have the other related issue of Ukraine reconstruction. We've had we've had uh, former U.S. officials on this on this podcast talking about this, you know, the issue of reconstruction, the issue of accountability and transparency um, around reconstruction. A lot of money is going to be pouring into Ukraine to rebuild the country. And it's going to be West, Western money. Some of it's going to be private sector money. Some of it's going to be public money. But there's going to be a lot of accountability along that. Do you think this is going to, I want to say, solve this problem, but alleviate it? Well, we are seeing that the European Union, member states of the European Union, some of them are not really 
uh, stellar examples of a democratic <laughs> record, right? And the fact that they actually successfully completed the U.S. session process does not mean that corruption problems are solved in some of these countries or democracy problems are solved in many, in some of these in countries. Some of not, these not many, right? But recent... Not to mention Hungary by name. But I'm, I, <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to avoid the names of the countries, so... Uh, I'll do it. <laughs> so, so in this sense, uh, I would say, uh, yes, it has tremendous, tremendous symbolic significance. Uh, the uh, session talks that were declared, announced this week uh, in Kiev. Um, but whether or not they will fundamentally change Ukraine and fundamentally change the way Ukraine is governed, I'm more skeptical mm. on, this, on this side. And more importantly, I was listening to the coverage of these talks in uh, European press, in European media, for example, the German uh, media. Mm -hmm. And there, the argument is, yes, we begin the U.S. session talks, but how long they will take, we have no idea. And in fact, until the war is over, we cannot bring Ukraine in. And that is the crucial question, because if, if we believe that Ukraine at some point will become a member of NATO and European Union, we also understand that the key to this date is in the Kremlin, because ultimately it's up to the Kremlin to decide whether or not they want to stop uh, the war against Ukraine. They have the capacity, as we all under both understand, to fight this war for a very long time. Yes, they do. Right? In various forms, not necessarily through another major counter, rather major offensive on Kiev uh, or on Odessa, but just by hitting Ukraine using missiles, et cetera, mm -hmm. right? Or uh, keeping some of the occupied territories. They have this capacity. And in this sense, they have the capacity to postpone some of these key decisions on membership uh, in NATO and the European Union. Now, you gave me the perfect segue because I did want to circle back to that which we started, and that is General Zeluzhny's uh, interview and article, which, I mean, I was... I mean, Zeluzhny's reputation as a soldier, soldier who tells it like it is. He doesn't play politics. Um, I bet you're probably more skeptical about that than some of my previous guests on the podcast to talk, who talked about General Zeluzhny. We know how this landed in the West. Um, we know how it. We know that those that don't want to continue helping Ukraine use this as a pretext, right? How did it land in Ukraine? How 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 did this how did this assessment land inside Ukraine? So I think there were different responses to this assessment. We've seen that the government, uh, the uh, presidential office, was very unhappy mm -hmm. with this publication and with his statements. We also heard from Zelensky a number of times that, in fact, what Zeluzhny said about the stalemate is wrong and that he believes there is no stalemate. So for, we suddenly see the president openly rebuking his top commander uh, and uh, basically reversing his assessment or evaluations. This is quite something, I would, mm -hmm. I would think. Uh, in other circles, though, we've seen different interpretations. So some people say this is a very uh, important reality check for the Ukrainians because we actually were waiting for, for the Ukrainian leaders, some Ukrainian leaders, to explain. We understand that something is not going according to the plan, so we need to understand what's actually happening. Uh, it's better to be aware of the uh, realities on the battlefront than to live in illusions. And so Zeluzhny gave this reality. So I, from what I hear is that many are actually very positively viewing this as uh, uh, an honest uh, evaluation or honest assessment. But it does trigger uh, a sense that there may be a political battle brewing within Ukraine uh, on the future of Ukraine. Uh, and the fact that Zeluzhny and Zelensky now at odds, obviously, on some of the key issues about what the battle uh, looks like, the battlefield looks like, 
is maybe a, a reflection of some deeper divides mm. that may exist between them. And we've known for a while that there are some divides between them. But now they're coming into the open. But we can't, I mean, I I don't think we're going to see Zaluzhny depart the scene. He's just far too good a general and far too important. And I think Zelensky is a smart man and understands that, or am I mistaken here? Um, Zelensky is a smart man, and Zaluzhny is too important to depart the scene, <laughs> but both of these things do not prevent the fact that Zaluzhny may be fired by Zelensky at some point. I do not exclude this possibility. I hope to God that doesn't happen. Uh, I, I believe you probably hope to God that doesn't happen as well. Absolutely. But we also have to see that the first response of Zelensky to this article was the firing of the head of the Special Operation Forces that happened just a few days after the article was released without him consulting Zaluzhny. So you have a president, uh, yes, he is the supreme commander, firing one of the key military uh, officials uh, mm. who are right now waging the war without consulting the second in command, this, uh, mm. basically a person responsible for the entire military campaign. What type of signal is he sending with this? Well, of course, he is sending a signal that he's in charge, that ultimately it's the politicians who are in charge over the military. And maybe next step would be, this is just the first warning, like in The Godfather, you right. have you have the head of the uh, horse, right, appearing right next to you in the bed, and right. then next time your car is being blown up. Uh, maybe that's uh, that's the kind of uh, pattern that uh, path that we are going to. I mean, see. it sounds to me like you're saying that Zelensky is letting his political considerations override his national security considerations. Mike Clinton, um, my reading, what you're saying? Um, I would say that. He, uh, there is certainly tension between the two, mm -hmm. uh, between both national security and political considerations. And unfortunately, we've seen in the past that Zelensky has been very sensitive to any political challengers or opponents that appear on the scene, even prior to the war. Remember, he went after a number of individuals who he viewed as his possible political opponents, people who were critical of him. Uh, whenever he saw disloyalty coming from, for example, the former first prime minister mm -hmm. of Ukraine, um, Goncharuk, uh, he immediately fired him the moment he heard about some possible disloyalty. When he heard about disloyalty of the prosecutor general, Reba Shapkan, mm -hmm. one of the first guys, he fired him as well and put people who are completely loyal. He surrounded himself from the very beginning with people whom he knew personally through uh, his business uh, in the entertainment area. So in this sense, Zelensky unfortunately uh, reflects the kind of political leader who puts a premium on personal loyalty mm -hmm. over other competencies. Mm -hmm. And that has been the trend prior to the war. I hoped, um, as a Ukrainian citizen who obviously has a stake in the outcome, that Zelensky changed as a political leader. But the events of the last few weeks unfortunately demonstrate that he may be suffering from some of the same ills. Mm -hmm. And if you look at them, I mean, look at what Zeluzhny actually wrote and said, anybody that's been following this war, it should not come as any surprise. Right? I mean, one of the subtexts of the article is something that American military analysts have been saying for a long time, that we are expecting the Ukrainian armed forces, as good as they are, to do something we would never, ever ask American soldiers to do. And that is conduct a combined arms operation without air power, not without air superiority, without air power. That any general will tell you that's insanity, but yet they've been doing it. And again, this is, again, I'm an optimist by nature, and I always look at the glass being half full. I think the Ukrainian armed forces performed remarkably well in doing this impossible task of performing a, a combined arms operation without air power. 
I mean, this is reading between the lines of what Zeluzhny was saying. It sounded to me like he was saying what a lot of American generals have been saying um, about the, about this operation. Now, uh, it, it, it also seemed to me to be a plea to the West. You know, we need precision-guided weapons. The era of, like, the, these heavy arms are not going to help us anymore. We need precision-guided weapons. We need air power. Right. That's what it sounded yes. like to me. Yes, yes. But at the same time, we have to remember that this is the conclusion we made ex post. Prior to the beginning of the counteroffensive operation, the dominant narratives were very optimistic, coming from the Western media, naively from the so. Western naively commentators, so. yes, um, too hopeful, too positive. Uh, that was one one problem, I think. The, the second problem uh, is that uh, Zeluzhny uh, characterized the battlefield dynamics as a parity, in, in the sense that both Russia and Ukraine have enough military capability to stop each other from advancing. Right? And if we imagine that this type of situation continues over the long term, that will be damaging to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So his argument is that basically everything that the United States and the West invested in Ukraine so far is insufficient. You actually have to invest even more in order to hope that possibly we can achieve a breakthrough. Right? He's making this argument at the time when there is a great aversion to additional funding, yeah. both in Europe and in the United States. And in this sense, uh, this article produces uh, uh, maybe the opposite effect from what he expected. Rather than saying, yeah, we need to pull up resources and give Ukraine even more, the argument is, well, we already given so much and they still haven't succeeded. There is a parity. There is a balance on the battlefield. So why should we keep pouring these resources in the in the case that may be a failed case right this is this is the concern and one more uh, element of this article that i want to point point to attention to is that he when he outlined four factors of the future victory for ukraine three of them are related to military to military equipment military resources but the fourth is related to manpower mm -hmm. ukrainian manpower the ability to recruit uh, additional uh, people in the in the army, and his argument is that unfortunately, and I think that's one of the things that produced a lot of discussion in Ukraine. Unfortunately, there is greater reluctance within the Ukrainian society for people to volunteer into the army to join the armed forces, and those who do join armed forces who are recruited are usually spend very little time preparing, and so when they come out on the battlefield they cannot really fight. Uh, mm -hmm. And many of them are killed in the first few weeks, right? And this number, 43, uh, 42 years old, the average age, right, was a shocking fact, That's, shocking revelation, yeah. right? Because <laughs> it means that our army is, is pretty old. Yeah, no, that 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 was that was a shocking factor. And we're kind of getting into the we're getting away from the politics and into the conduct of the war. But that's all right because that's right that's where I kind of intended it to be. And in the second half, I wanted to discuss um, an article you wrote back in March that seemed really prophetic. So in a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and kind of mix the domestic politics of Ukraine with actually where we think this war might be going forward. 
I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me right here in the studio is Serhi Kudelia, an associate professor of political science at Baylor University, a close observer of Ukrainian affairs and author of numerous, numerous articles on Ukrainian politics and foreign policy. I'd also like to remind you that you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review because that certainly helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. You can still follow us on that platform that was once known as the Twitter, at Power Vertical. And you now you can also follow us on Threads and Blue Sky at Power Vertical. And please do because we're trying to increase our followership on those platforms. Наша перемога можлива, вона буде, якщо ми всі будемо зосереджені саме на ній, не на політиканстві чи пошуках якогось свого особистого інтересу, не на суперечках, які нічого не дадуть країні та обороні і нашому руху вперед. So, Serhi, back in March, you wrote an article um, for Al Jazeera that was, unfortunately, in my view, has proven to be very prescient. Um, it's much more prescient than I would have liked it to be. Uh, about the then-upcoming counteroffensive, you wrote the following. I'm quoting you now. Given the increased density of Russian forces along the southern front line, it would be hard for Ukrainians to repeat the sudden pincer movements which allowed for the quick liberation of occupied towns in the Kharkiv region and in parts of the Donbass last year. If there is no decisive shift on the battlefield over the next six months, however, the pressure for peace talks from the Western governments will most likely grow. You were certainly right about the first part. Um, I still hope, and I think you probably hope, that you were wrong about the second part. How do you see this playing out going forward? How will the Ukrainians react and we all hope this doesn't happen and they won't have to face this, but how will Ukrainians react if the West begins to pressure Ukraine to negotiate with the aggressor? Well, first, let me say that we've already seen reports last week uh, about uh, the possible um, suggestions coming from Washington and from other capitals about the possibility of the talks. This is not exactly the pressure. This is mm. not exactly saying, no, now, guys, it's your time to start negotiating. But the fact that you already see indications that maybe this would be a good idea, right? We heard the uh, um, conversation uh, of uh, Italian Prime Minister Milani with the, the Russian prankers where she suggested that we are at the point when we have to find the way out, that we are approaching that point when we have to find the way out of the war. And of course, find the way out of the war stands for we have to negotiate bad peace, right? That would be bad probably yeah. certainly for Ukraine. Right, the out the uh, bad the negotiations would be very negative for Ukraine. Um, now, let me uh, say that I I first think that even though uh, I agree with Zeluzhny uh, that we are facing a stalemate on the battlefield, and the stalemate is the consequence of the parity that we just discussed. Um, it's still far from the point when these both sides can come to negotiation table, uh, and the. Uh, for negotiations to even be considered right, by the fighting sides, you need to have what political scientists call mutually hurting stalemate, right. Right. where the costs of continued stalemate for both sides are so significant that even 
negotiations over bad peace would be preferable to right. continued stalemate. We're not there right? yet. We are not there yet. And when we think about um, the uh, war prior to the beginning of the full-scale invasion, prior to 2000, so period from 2014 to 2022, remember we basically had also a stalemate around Donbass, right. right, around the contact line. There was uh, firing back and forth, but neither side could advance, right? Mm -hmm. And that did not really help as far as pushing negotiations forward. There were contacts, but there were no serious negotiations happening. That, if I can interrupt, is because Russia was playing a very, very insidious game here. They were attempting to basically say Ukraine needs to take these territories back in, but with the Russian armed militia still in power there, with Russia still in control of Ukraine's border, and they were trying to basically create a, a fifth column or a Trojan horse in Ukraine that would basically make Ukraine dysfunctional as a state and allow Russia to control it. To their credit, two successive Ukrainian presidents, Poroshenko and Zelensky, understood fully what Russia was doing and wasn't, wasn't playing ball. They would rather just leave this frozen than take it back on Russia's terms. So it was this weird situation of whoever wins is the one that gets is the one that loses the territory effectively. It was a very weird situation, but that is why it couldn't move there because Russia had political goals it was trying to achieve by effectively ceding these territories back to Ukraine. That was how I read the situation. I thought it was what I called Putin's turn Ukraine into Bosnia Herzegovina strategy. That yes, was my understanding. Uh, of course, I agree with you that that Russia had these objectives in mind. But also, you, we have to accept the fact that the costs of not coming to an agreement from both President Poroshenko mm. and President Zelensky were minimal at that mm. time. Yes. Because the casualty rate was very small. Very small. Uh, there was a single numbers, right? In the last year, remember, just single numbers. There were not that many people killed on both sides. Um, and as a result, Ukraine could tolerate this right. uh, outcome of this frozen, semi-frozen conflict for quite some time, right? It could tolerate mm. But if you had a different outcome, if you had actually situation like in Debaltsevo or like in Lovaisk, mm -hmm. where the Russian forces were moving all the way out in, the Ukrainians could not hold them. And there were serious risks that the Russians could actually break through to other parts of Ukraine. That is when the Ukrainians were willing to negotiate mm -hmm. uh, and sign agreements, and right? Minsk, Minsk 1 and Minsk, Minsk 2, where the results of Russia in increasing the costs on the Ukrainian side and hence pushing them to the negotiation table. So what we are seeing today is, if the parity analogy is correct from the standpoint of Zeluzhny, we are seeing that this stalemate may continue for quite some time because neither side can impose, either Russia on Ukraine or Ukraine on Russia, the kinds of costs that would be viewed as unsustainable from the standpoint mm -hmm. of either Moscow or Kiev. In other words, we can sustain this conflict for some time. But there is a condition that I want, or a precondition that I want to emphasize. For Ukraine, it also means that this current level of military assistance that it receives has to be maintained. Mm -hmm. If Ukraine's assistance coming from the United States, let's imagine next year you have presidential election, and God forbid Trump and Tucker form a winning ticket, right? And come to power, right? What happens then with the military assistance? If it suddenly ends, then that parity is destroyed. Then Russia will be gaining a, an upper hand, and then we will have a Debaltsevo or Ilovaisk risks right. again, unless Ukraine can find additional resources to maintain that parity. Now, the European assistance, most Americans don't know this, 
the European Union is giving as much as the United States, but if the American assistance dries up, I fully also expect the European assistance to dry up. I, I, it's, I truly hope we don't get to that point. I hope we get this latest tranche through the this latest appropriation through the Congress. I think we will. Quite frankly, it's going to be ugly and messy, but it's going to. But I think I think it's going to get done. Um, if it gets to that point, God forbid, what is what what is acceptable to Ukrainians? Because the point I always make about this when I hear Westerners saying, "Well, Ukraine should negotiate," I say, "Great. What part of Germany do you want to give to the Russians? You know, what part of America do you want to give to the Russians?" And we're not just talking about land here; we're talking about people. And this is one of the ways I call it the Bucha effect. Bucha changed all of this because we saw what happens to people who are living under Russian occupation. We saw with our own eyes what happens to people who are living under Russian occupation. We're not just talking about land. That's kind of abstract, right? We're talking about people, right? What is What would be acceptable, if anything? Because I, I suspect knowing the Ukrainians like I do, nothing would be, not an inch of territory would be acceptable. Yes, and that's why I think comprehensive agreement that would finalize all of these territorial disputes between Russia and Ukraine is impossible mm -hmm. to imagine. Because it's not a territorial dispute. This is Ukraine's territory in Russia. Exactly. <laughs> the, the the claims that Russia has on Ukrainian territories and Russia uh, on Ukrainian territory, right? right? These issues would not be would not be settled, settled through any type of comprehensive agreement. But I would not exclude the possibility of a, of a some kind of a ceasefire agreement, especially if. Russia tries to engage in another counteroffensive in next year, in the summer or in the spring, and they find that they cannot push uh, and they cannot gain anything out of it. Uh, at some point, I, I would not exclude the possibility that Putin would want to agree to a ceasefire. Uh, from the Ukrainian standpoint, the ceasefire will be a breathing space where we would try to mobilize additional resources. So would Russia. And, of course, so in Russia. So a ceasefire will be a postponed conflict, right? right. We would understand that this war will be renewed at a later point in time. The good, the good thing is that Zelensky and Ukrainian leadership in general is younger and than Putin and the Kremlin, the, those mm, old guys right. who are sitting in the Kremlin. So maybe that breathing space will end with the change in power in the Kremlin, people who are leading Russia. And with that change, maybe we will see a different... Uh, viewpoints. Yeah, because we've talked about the domestic kind of view of this from the West. We've looked at Ukraine, the thing that's been kind of absent from this discussion, and it's a big known unknown, uh, is what happens in Russia going forward. And I'm, I mean, I, I, I study Russia for a living. I don't know. I don't know. I just edited a paper for the Atlantic Council that looks at five scenarios for the future. And they range all the way from Putin stays in power to nationalists come to power that are worse than Putin, all the way to the breakup of the Russian Federation along the lines of the Soviet Union in 91. So, and, and we don't know. I mean, the Prigozhin uh, mutiny, uprising, insurrection, whatever the hell you want to call it, d did expose cracks in the crime family that runs Russia, if you will, right? Because you basically had an underboss going for the boss and, and, and missing um, but I think I've always viewed the Putin regime as extremely brittle. Yes. Um, it's a regime that looks strong as hell until the moment it's not. Exactly. Um, and we got a false alarm back in June, but I don't think that was the last false alarm we're going to get. And that's the, that is this, this X factor we yes. have out there that we really, we really don't know. So, I mean, then there's a sense that Ukraine could outlast Putin. And from all the evidence we have about how this uh, full-scale invasion began, it was really a brainchild of Putin and a few of his close advisors. It was not; it did not represent a wide consensus of Russian political no. elites. No. 
So in that sense, I think that's that's an optimistic viewpoint. If we can find all some optimism, right? That's in the fact that if there is a ceasefire and breathing space, that ceasefire uh, may ultimately allow Ukraine both to pull up resources and develop itself economically, but also weight Putin up. Yeah, and you're going to have a you're going to that's going to kind of kind of spark a conversation about what did these over hundred thousand now Russians die in this war? What did they die for? What we get, and that's going to be a very uncomfortable question for the Kremlin elite to answer going forward. Um, I don't. I mean, where this could lead politically in Russia is a real wild card. I mean, it's it's really. I'm very very careful about making predictions about Russia. Um, in, in in this sense, I can I can look at different scenarios that are possible, right? And I see many that are on the horizon. This regime's not going to last forever. Putin's not immortal. He's getting old. Um, this regime looks very Brezhnev, looks like very, very late Brezhnevian in my view right now. You have this generation that's been in power now for more than, for, 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 for over 20 years. I mean, if you were born the day Putin came, became president, you'd be an adult now. Yes. You have no, no president yes. other than Putin, really. Medvedev doesn't count. I think that's kind of a ridiculous presidency. But so I, at the end of the day, we're, we're bumping up towards the end of the program here. I mean, we've kind of discussed a lot here. Sir, are you... As a Ukrainian and as a political scientist, and I understand these two things might be in con <laughs> conflict with each other. I find this as an American friend of Ukraine. I find it hard to keep my. I'm very personally invested in this, having lived there and having you know, being very fond of Ukraine. But yet, I try to keep that out of my analysis of where 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 I see this going. So, as a political scientist and as a Ukrainian, are you optimistic or pessimistic? Well, you know, there's this famous phrase from John Maynard Keynes about in the long term we're all dead. Right. Uh, well. I think for Ukrainian is the reverse. In the long term, we're all alive. In mm -hmm. the long term, we will survive. In the long term, Ukrainian state will certainly uh, grow and develop and be very successful. In the short term, we will go. We are going to go through very hard times. Mm -hmm. I mean, how would you? And this is something that it's been raised with me. And I don't even like to talk about Ukraine giving up a territory. I just don't even like to talk. It's offensive. But let's just suspend our being offended for a moment. Um, what if a, some kind of arrangement where, yeah, Ukraine loses territory, but it immediately gets a name? Would that be acceptable to Ukrainians? I'm hearing more and more of these ideas coming from Ukraine, from uh, Ukrainians whom I talk to, who are suggesting that maybe getting into NATO uh, in exchange for giving up Donetsk and Lugansk would be not such a bad idea. Mm. Right, because so ultimately, are seeing this as, a, as example. Right. I want what I want to emphasize here is when we talk about territories, we forget about the people. I know, and this is yes, we forget about the people who live on these territories. Mm -hmm. Right, and Ukraine has not answered this question. What do we do once we recapture these territories with the people who many of them actually support Russia? Many of them have been for various reasons, mm -hmm. right? Because they lost their loved ones, because the other side also lost their loved ones because they've been con committed to the regime for a long time. So uh, it's for them, it's a, it's a cost uh, considerations as well. For various reasons, ideological or uh, mm. opportunistic, but they actually do not want to live in Ukraine as it looks like today. What do we do with these people? And, and you can argue that majority of them, uh, maybe in Crimea, maybe in Donbass, I don't know the exact public opinion, but a lot of them have these views. Yeah. Yep. And so from this standpoint, it presents huge difficulty because we, we may get a territory just like we have uh, this discussion now in the case of mm -hmm. Gaza. 
Israel can go into Gaza, but what happens to the Palestinians who live there, right? Mm -hmm. They can control Gaza, but for how long? So mm -hmm. we can get back Donbass, we can back, uh, get back Ramir, let's mm -hmm. imagine that. But what do we do with two million people who live there? Yeah, and that is, I mean, this is a podcast I want to do in the future. I think we might be getting ahead of our skis there. But if we look at the best case scenario, and Ukraine liberates everything, including Ukraine, there's going to be a big old problem with transitional justice right there, yeah. um, and which is going to be the subject of an entire podcast. Because again, what do you, we don't want to see reprisals. We don't want to see the kind of thing we saw, for example, in the Sudetenland after the Second World War and what happened to the Sudeten Germans. We don't want to see anything like that. We want to see this done according to the rule of law. But the, I mean, emotions are going to be tough. And what do you do with all these people that were, in fact, either passive or active collaborators with the aggressor? Right. It's going to be a tricky, 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 thorny question going forward, but that's the subject of another program. This has been a great discussion, Sergey. I'm watching my watch, and I'm mindful of everybody's time. Any last thoughts before we wrap it up for this week? Uh, I'm glad we are having this discussion because I th I think that uh, it's not we are not paying enough attention in the Western media to what's happening within Ukraine. So there is a lot of discussion of the military dynamics. But as we've seen from the last week or two weeks, the military dynamics may depend also on internal political mm -hmm. balances and internal political relationships. So we have to talk more about it. Yeah, no, and you've certainly been right. You, you, you had a great piece even before the war in current history about Ukraine's resilience, which was actually another piece that was very prescient, um, which is something that the West really didn't understand. That resilience is being tested now like never before. And on that note, we'll wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me here in the studio has been Serhii Kudelia, an associate professor of political science at Baylor University a close observer of Ukrainian affairs, and the author of numerous articles on Ukrainian politics and foreign policy. Sergei, thank you for a very enlightening discussion, for making me and for making our listeners a whole lot smarter. Thank you, Brian. It was a pleasure. But hope to have you on again soon. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team here in Arlington, Texas, where I am actually physically located at the moment. Lance Ligas is in the control room, keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Zachary Bell handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many, many messes and making us all sound a whole lot better than we do in real life. I'd like to also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review because that really helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. You can follow us on that platform that was once known as the Twitter at Power Vertical. You can also follow us on Threads and Blue Sky at Power Vertical, and please do because I'm trying to build up our following there. Join us again next week, and until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team. Thank you.